You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What this country needs, apparently, a senator just kept on talking and talking. What this country needs, letting the world know what, in his opinion, the country needed. The board vice president presiding over as president of the Senate apparently said, maybe just to the Senate clerk or a few others, what this country needs is a good five-cent cigar. Who knows? Maybe it's folklore. Of course, it was never recorded, but it's just the kind of joke Thomas Riley Marshall well-liked by many. Time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A young man is sitting on his father's lap for the debate between Abraham Lincoln and Stephen Douglas in Freeport, Illinois. His father is rooting for Stephen Douglas and against the future president and hero of the Union. That's okay, because Thomas Riley Marshall remembers being for the tall man. Years later, Marshall would be the host to kings and queens and princes. Some of the most difficult debates in the nation's history would happen under his gavel. It was quite a feat for a young man reared in country Indiana, far from anything. As a Columbia City, Indiana lawyer who clerked with his uncle, could not afford law school, at 21 he practiced law in the swampy city, working with draining companies, contractors, mortgages, a lot of legal work, a lot of building going on. He was friendly to everyone. Ditch diggers, bankers, town lawyers, preachers, and others accepted him as a friend with a good-natured sense of humor. He was a skilled lawyer. He joked that he could tell if a witness was lying by watching his Adam's apple. He was also fair. He hated ambulance chasers and lawyers who took divorce suits prior to trying to bring the couple together. He ran the county fair several years. He gave to charities. He taught Sunday school. His law firm soon had about half the cases in Columbia City. And when his partner ran as a Democrat for Congress, he got involved in politics, not directly as a candidate, but as a sought-out speaker and friend to many a county chairman who needed somebody to keep the audience awake while they were introducing the next candidate. But he didn't exactly like the whole idea of politicians or modern uh, campaigning as he saw it. As he writes in his wonderful book, A Hoosier Salad, 
I simply am amazed as I drive around the city before a primary election and observe an immense lithograph tacked on a telephone pole calling upon the people to preserve their freedom by voting for Bill Jones for coroner. There evidently are a few others who think as I do, for I remember to have seen one of these immense lithographs headed The People's Choice for Coroner, and when the returns were in, The People's Choice had received less than 50 votes. Then that night, some wag wrote on the bottom of the poster, Friends will please not send flowers. Ordinarily, the enthusiasm of a man for nomination and election is in inverse ratio to the importance of the office he seeks. In that long, drawn-out day following the election in which the vote of New York wobbled first to, and then away from Grover Cleveland, we were all sitting around, bleary-eyed and nervous, in the Democratic headquarters in my hometown. When about seven o'clock in the evening, the candidate for coroner came in, mopped his bald head, and said, Boys, what's the result? The chairman replied that it was still in doubt. Mr. Candidate added, Well, I didn't think they could beat me. Whereupon the chairman arose, uttered no word, seized the potential coroner by the scruff of his neck, opened the door, and threw him downstairs. Marshall was mentioned for office a few times, but he declined. Uh, he was a bachelor for a lot of his life. Although the woman that he asked to marry him said yes and died soon after. Marshall lived in a small house with his mother. As late as 1906, as a 50-year-old, he refused a chance to become a congressman. The real amusement of those earlier days was not golf or mahjong. It was local politics. It was played by everybody with the zest of the confirmed gambler. I have had some delightful experiences in my life. They have come moments to me when, if I had not been conscious of my lack of merit, I should have been proud beyond compare. But looking back over 50 years of life filled with many small and few important events, I think the proudest moment of my life was when I saw a four-poster bill stuck up in front of the courthouse carrying in different colored inks, the announcement that the Honorable William Jones, John Smith Esquire, and little Tommy Marshall would address the citizens of Poor Hook on the political issues of the day. Honors, enjoyment, and happiness are all relative. Why not take the gift the gods bring you and be content? It was at this important meeting when the fate of the Republican civilization hung trembling in the balance. He was 41 when, working on a case, he met Lois Marshall, a local county clerk. She had but one requirement. Marshall had been drinking to excess. In 1897, some noticed him unable to do morning court on account of his condition. But soon got that under control. And by the time we got to 1907, Marshall actually asks for something bold. He asks to be the candidate for governor. He had developed a relationship through his speaking with the mayor of Indianapolis and kind of the head of the Indiana Democratic Party, Tom Taggart. The Democratic convention, it turned out, was too divided and Taggart's candidate couldn't get through. The issue was prohibition. Marshall at the time favored a local option, meaning that he favored that every town, not just county, every town should decide for itself what their policy regarding intoxicants would be. This was enough to get Marshall, who had no enemies, 
through the convention. Marshal crisscrossed the state, and he caught up the candidate when the candidate backed an action by the state legislature to take control of the intoxicants issue. Marshall pilloried him throughout the state for refusing to let the people decide. And on the local option issue, because he was a great campaigner, he actually received 15,000 votes in margin to his opponent. And in 1908, where Bryan, who wasn't very popular in the state of Indiana, was being beaten by William Howard Taft, Marshall closed the gap with Taft, just 150 votes less than him, Well, which is a very rare feat. Democratic governors, uh, Democratic gubernatorial victories at this time were rare, and to come so close to narrowly eclipsing the margin that Taft was beating Brian by in a state where Brian wasn't very popular, quite a feat. There was some notice. There was also notice when he reformed Indiana's law, when he reformed the governing accounting practice and introduced that local option. He'd even moved to change parts of the state constitution. I've always felt there was a good bit of constructive legislation enacted during my term as governor. It was in the installation of the public accounting system, whereby the books, papers, and documents of every official in the state are examined by CPAs, one from each party each year, and the official is then checked out, or if he's off in his accounts, is compelled to adjust them. Shortly before the system was inaugurated, two of the accountants came into my office with what I think is an amusing incident and a remarkable statement of the inherent honesty of some men. They told me that they were examining the records of a certain township trustee in the southern part of the state. This man was of German extraction. They found that he had charged himself in the road fund of his township with graft $20. This excited their curiosity, and so they asked him to explain. He did. To this effect, he said he had to buy a road scraper, and there were three or four agents seeking to sell him one. He liked the appearance of one young man better than the others, and as the prices were substantially the same, he bought the road scraper of this particular agent. When he had concluded the contract, he walked down to the train with him, and as young man got aboard, he shook hands and said goodbye. When the ceremony had taken place, he found in his hands a $20 bill. He said to the agent, Here, you have left $20 of your money with me. The agent replied, No, that's yours. The trustee asked, Why? How is it mine? The agent said, Why, you blamed old fool? That's graft. And, continued the trustee to the accountants, as I knew it did not belong to me, I just put it in the road fund and entered it on the books as graft. But because of all the changes in the state, Marshall is getting some national attention. And while he doesn't think that he could get it, maybe there could be a deadlock convention in 1912. And he could win the Democratic nomination for president. That didn't happen. But running as a favorite son did help him earn another spot. When Indiana's votes went to Wildrow Wilson, Woodrow Wilson at the Baltimore 1912 Democratic Convention at a crucial time, switching to him on the 28th ballot and starting a storm for Wilson, Marshall was rewarded with the VP nomination. Woodrow Wilson was in entirely happy with the choice. He's a small-caliber man, isn't he? But he didn't object, just like he wouldn't four years later. 
Marshall had not traveled much outside Indiana and did not know Wilson, and they campaigned separately. Although he accepted the vice presidential ticket, um, although Marshall accepts the vice presidential spot, but he is the origin of many of the jokes about the vice presidency. Of course, the most famous one is about the two sons who leave the father, and the father is distraught. One went to sea. The other one became vice president. Neither one will be seen again, the father said. That's Marshall. In the city of Denver, while I was vice president, a big husky policeman kept following me around until I asked him what he was doing. He said he was guarding my person. I said, your labor is in vain. Nobody was ever crazy enough to shoot at a vice president. If you will go away and find somebody to shoot at me, I'll go down in history as being the first vice president who ever attracted enough attention even to have a crank shoot at him. He found the vice president's office in the Senate building to be like a monkey change, except visitors do not offer me peanuts. But he decided to take it all in a good-natured way. This was his spot, and he would end up being the first vice president since John Calhoun to be reelected to the vice presidency. The state of Indiana was important in both elections, although in the second election of 1916, a real squeaker, he didn't win Indiana, nor did Wilson win his home state of New Jersey. As he wrote Wilson at the close 1968 re-election, it was not so deep, uh, he sent a telegraph, it was not so deep of a well or wide as a church door, but tis enough, twill serve. In his first term as vice president, he had a good time, got along well with senators. He wasn't from Washington, and they didn't really know him well. But as a person from Indiana who could tell a good story, he was always sought after. Alice Longworth Roosevelt, Alice Roosevelt Longworth, daughter of Teddy Roosevelt and observer of the political scene, called him the vice president and toastmaster. In the first term, a lot of progressive legislation was passed, and he was particularly following the details of the Federal Reserve and found that the legislation met his approval. For years, he had seen William Jennings Bryan, who he supported in 1896 more as a party function than as a believer. He saw him as too focused on coining, constantly talking about 16 to 1, about silver versus gold. But it wasn't about coinage. It was about banking. And he felt that the Federal Reserve System fixed this because the problem was always that in bad times, bankers were constantly calling in loans. And in good times, they had all this money to lend that no one wanted. He also saw particular um, legislation, eight-hour workday for railroad workers. But with Europe at war, the second term, 
is really where the big questions of his vice presidency came up. He was reluctant, but followed policy like a good VP when it came to questions of war. As a Midwesterner, his region generally was opposed to American involvement in the European war and was, with a large German-American population, a bit mixed about whose side they were on. In his recollections, he talks about how hated the British were at times. First of all, there's a large Irish-American population in addition to a German-American population in the United States. And at this time, Ireland is not free. It's uh, part of the United Kingdom. Uh, so there's that. A uh, lot of Irish in Indiana that he dealt with as governor. He also talks about how the British were seizing American ships, something not talked about that much, that it really went both ways. The Germans had their U-boats and the British were seizing American ships and sometimes not compensating owners or even notifying them for a long time or not at all. And in his opinion, we almost could have gone to war with both sides or with just the British, except for the Germans going mad, which is how he described it declaring unrestricted sub-warfare into every American, not just a patriot, but is a human being, could see that as an attack against humanity and force Wilson's hand. What Thomas Marshall thought didn't much matter because Wilson did not consult his vice president at all. Even on the issue where vice presidents in the 19th and early 20th century could help a lot, being a liaison to the Senate because they were president of the Senate, kind of give the administration, well, here's what the Senate's thinking about the bills you want to propose. Wilson was so directly involved with the lobbying of Congress that even that was not a function that was needed that much. But despite this, because of Wilson's overseas travel after World War I was over, and negotiations began at Versailles, Marshall became acting president while Wilson was in Europe. But Marshall was clear. He was not replacing Wilson. He was merely chairing the cabinet meetings so that they could go on and discuss matters. He was performing a favor for the cabinet, he said in his opening statement. He was performing the same function he would perform as vice president in the Senate. He did not direct the executive branch because he could not have the confidence of both the executive branch and the legislative one at the same time. That, he felt, would be embarrassing. As for the presidency itself, I never wanted the place, Marshall said in his recollections. Many accounts suggest Marshall was terrified when he first learned of a stroke that Wilson has. He filled in on ceremonial occasions and had to receive the king and queen of Belgium, and Wilson was unable to. In fact, when Wilson has a second stroke that is very disabling, Marshall learns not from Wilson, not from Mrs. Wilson, not from Wilson's doctor, not from the secretary of state, not from a cabinet officer, but from a reporter in the Baltimore Sun. That's it. And when he learns of it, The Baltimore Sun reporter's uh, version is that Marshall just puts his head in his hands and doesn't say anything at all. And so eventually the reporter, after a time, gets up and leaves the room. Later, Marshall apologized for that, that this was just simply such a shocking event, the type of shock he had never experienced in his life as a country lawyer and 
state politician. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. But all of this was arranged. The reason they're sending a reporter is because they want no official of the government. There isn't a 25th Amendment at the time that Marshall is vice president. So there's no official procedure for the vice president to take over the presidency. But there is Article 2, and Article 2 mentions that the vice president serves in the inability of the president. It just doesn't say what those procedures are. And what they did know is that if they didn't provide a government uh, source, it would help shield the, the president from being removed. 
Marshall makes an attempt to visit the White House. Marshall tells members of the cabinet that he really should be informed more. So it's not 100% known how Marshall, you know, was reacting to all of this. It's kind of a mixed reaction as you or I might have. You're in this position where you're supposed to be replacing the president in time of inability. You're hearing about these things, but you're not sure what's going on. Between Edith Wilson's kind of disguising the husband's condition and closing off the White House to visitors, Wilson being adamant about the League of Nations and this proposal for a world body being attached to the peace treaty with Germany with no reservations, insisting that it pass together, the Senate being obstinate and that it would not, um, particularly a section which allowed for American troops to be used in a world police action if needed. The Congress felt that was binding. Marshall was in no mood, though, for a coup. I could have started a civil war, he told his wife, but he wasn't going to do that. His models, Stephen Douglas, Samuel Tilden, Democrats who put personal power aside when it was needed for the Union, those models would not allow him to take that action. Perhaps he wasn't serious enough for the job. His own sense of humor, his greatest strength, might have kept people from thinking, God, we've got to go to Marshall. This is what Wilson's advisor, Colonel House, felt. Uh, House at this time of the stroke is, of course, out of Wilson's orbit and not the trusted advisor that he used to be. But he felt that Marshall's greatest asset cut his power. Nothing is more fatal in politics, House thought. Must have been given to him by some unkind fairy godmother. There was, though, a discussion, and particularly here, Secretary of State Robert Lansing, has a discussion. He wants to push the issue a bit with Joseph Tumulty, secretary for Wilson, and Dr. Grayson, Wilson's doctor, who are no doubt consulting with Edith Wilson and perhaps the president or perhaps not, about putting Marshall in office as on a temporary basis just to administer the country. And, you know, and certainly he would step down as soon as Wilson was able. Tumulty and Grayson decide to refuse to allow any certification of disability. And if there is anyone issued by anyone, Tumulty and Grayson will say it's absolutely false. The president is fine. How does Marshall feel about all this? Well, he's got an issue, too, because if he goes and starts inquiring about the health of the president too much, he could be seen as ambitious or greedy. Uh, Probably the best source that we have on this is uh, Marshall's secretary, secretary in the governor's office who he carried over as vice president, uh, Thistleweight, who says that Marshall would not take the presidency unless Wilson signed the order, that was his position, or if the Congress removed him with two-thirds. He wouldn't accept anything from the cabinet. Nothing else would be legal, at least not in 1919 law. Moreover, he would be embarrassed and through as a political figure and his own reputation if Wilson recovers and then comes around and says, get off, you usurper. He didn't ask about the president's health. He didn't see the president until his last day on office. They were painful months for me, Marshall said. 
He shared Wilson's desire for a League of Nations. Uh, he may have shown more flexibility in negotiation with senators. One of the things Marshall points out in his recollections is, you know, everyone talks to Will about Wilson and how stubborn he was, but he sent a proposal to the Senate. They didn't really send officially any proposal back to the president. So both sides were being stubborn or something he feels like hasn't been pointed out enough. He is horrified about how the United States handled the end of the war, their involvement in Europe, and then not joining the League of Nations. It's like the person who responded to a burglar in a neighbor's house, took the burglar and threw him out. And then, seeing his neighbor was lying there injured, put on his hat and said, bye now, good night. I think it's interesting to talk about Marshall because he just has a view of politics that's different from ours today. For instance, um, he supports people in unions, but doesn't like things like concept, like, you know, special interest groups or, say, the union vote. There is no union vote. Someday these shivering politicians will find out that the laboring man is not a man with a dirty shirt who takes pleasure in fawning and in cowardice, but that he is a self-respecting American citizen who ultimately judges the conduct of public officials by their desire to uphold the law and do the right thing, who votes as he pleases, who is willing to transfer to somebody else the making of a contract which has to do with his wages and working conditions, but who is not willing and never will be to transfer into the hands a lot of self-constituted agents, the discharge of that high duty and preservation of the great privilege, which is his voting. You hear there in Thomas Marshall, I think, a very, you know, talk about today about flyover states. And, you know, then as now, it wasn't that much different. The East Coast in particular, controlling a lot of the politics of the country. And you have here a, a voice out of Indiana. You've seen since then politicians who, you know, are able to get working people's votes or union member votes in greater numbers, even though their union is endorsing someone else. And it's certainly a warning to be aware of. He had other positions. He was a, he was one that liked to use the pardon power when he was a governor. He was against people that were using what he called the yellow peril card and restricting the immigration of the Japanese in particular. He had good relationship with the Japanese administration. Um, ambassador. He's against the death penalty, but for life, without parole and without a gubernatorial or presidential pardon for it, unless the new evidence could be brought. He was against the annexation of the Philippines during the Spanish-American War. There was a vote that came up while he was vice president. He cast a tie vote to allow the Philippines to be independent, and it was something he was proud of, even though it never happened during Wilson's term. It was uh, eliminated in the conference between the House and the Senate. Uh, a very surprising – this is a book that's written in 1925. So he understands very well – this is what he says about the Japanese and, the, and his discussions with the ambassador. Very many Japanese were educated in our institutions of higher learning. Not only were there diplomats trained in American educational institutions, but there was not a, not a prominent general nor admiral in the Russo-Japanese War that did not obtain his military or naval training at West Point or Annapolis. No other nation on earth 
would suffer or permit a Japanese student to acquire the arts of war in any of its military or naval schools. There's not a one of them that did not express to me, and I believe they expressed truly the sentiment of the Japanese government, that war was unthinkable between our government and theirs. They even went to point of saying that if they were to lay aside all sentiments of gratitude, they were wise enough to know that while they could cause us a great deal of trouble in the beginning, that when we gathered ourselves together with our population and our wealth, they eventually would be swept into oblivion. And they were not men who talked as though they had not thoroughly considered the subject. One and all, they gave me something to think about. That's in 1925. This is what he says in, in relation to uh, his vote on Philippine independence. My vote was cast in accordance with what I believe to be the historic policy of the Republic, namely to stay at home and mind our own business. I saw the complications arising every day over the situation created by the war in Europe and our relations thereto, and I was eager, whether or not it was a good thing for the Filipino to get rid of these island possessions in the hope that we might maintain our neutrality. It is not my purpose to moralize about heist ideals and the duty which a people owes the God and to humanity. It may be we have reached a state of civilization in which every man loves his neighbor's wife as well as he loves his own, but I doubt it, and I'm not sure it would contribute to the good order of society if he did. International law, like any other law, is a huge joke, a moral sense of responsibility. President Wilson was right when he said that Article 10 was at the heart of the covenant of the League of Nations. Great lover of humanity and protagonist of peace that he was, he was not deceived by the human heart or the ambitions of men, when he believed that the time had not yet come when a law without power to enforce it would amount to very much under the stress of circumstances. He writes that in 25. Um, in 20 years, we're going to conclude a war with great bloodshed around the world. This vice president, one of many from Indiana, from the country, knew a lot more of what he was talking about than many gave him credit for. I hope you enjoyed this, and I thank you for listening.